Greetings, dear listeners. We're two weeks in from Hamas's brutal attack on Israeli civilians, and tensions just continue to rise. Israel has started its aerial attacks on Gaza, and it appears poised to launch a ground invasion soon. We decided to invite Peter Beinart onto the show. Peter writes at the Beinart Notebook on Substack, is editor-at-large of Jewish Currents, and a professor of journalism and political science at the City University of New York. Peter's trying to find hope for a path forward from a place where it looks like dead ends in every direction. We'll link a few of his recent pieces in the show notes. Join us as we unpack this very difficult moment together. Before we get started, a reminder to head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live and consider becoming a paying subscriber if you're not one yet. And don't forget to give us a like and review on your favorite podcast app. With all that out of the way, on to the show. Hi, Peter. Uh, Hi. Good to, good to see you. You were actually one of our earliest guests back in 2020. A lot has happened since then. So we're happy to have you back. You've written uh, an amazing piece. And I was just tweeting about this earlier today. And that's one of the reasons we wanted to have you on. The title is There is a Jewish Hope for Palestinian Liberation. It Must Survive. We'll include a link to that in the show notes. Really, um, to all our dear listeners and viewers, um, this is this piece stands out. So it's definitely worth your while. Um, and I felt almost some hope from it at the very end, although we can get into how much hope is warranted or not. But maybe just to start, um, Peter, because you're, you're one of the most prominent voices in America discussing the Israel-Hamas war Israel's bombardment of Gaza. I imagine you've been speaking to a lot of different audiences, and you know you're you're oftentimes in a difficult position because, um, let's say, many many American Jews have disagreements with you, or think that you're not sufficiently pro-Israel, and you're out there now in this article and other articles trying to offer broader context. So, and that's something, you know, I felt very passionately about that it should be possible to um, to strongly condemn and to be outraged by Hamas's massacre of Israeli civilians without losing sight of the broader context, that there's a decades-long Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And if we just focus on um, October 7th, we're actually not going to get closer to addressing um, a, a, a longer term solution. And at the end of the day, that's probably what most of us want, or at least the three of us. I don't know about Demir, but you and I, Peter, we, you know, um, come on, Sean, that's not day, fair. <laughs> Go I'm, on. I'm just joking. I jest. So maybe just how are you feeling? And, um, in light of personal, like personal attacks on you, I think a lot of us who are in the public space, it's been very personal and it's very hard to navigate. Well, it, it, it has been very difficult, but I honestly don't feel, it does, just doesn't feel kind of that appropriate to talk about 
the difficulty that I might experience as someone who gets criticisms from people in my own community, including people who are close to me, given what's happening to people in Israel and, and in Gaza. I mean, um, these are not serious problems compared to people whose family members are captive in Gaza or people whose family members are killed or people who are under bombardment with no electricity or water and, and, and fearing for their lives. So um, I think, you know, those those issues need to be put into perspective. Yeah, of course, uh, of course, those of us who are trying to figure out how to talk about these atrocities in real time, um, we should never lose sight of the actual atrocities that are happening. And the fact that um, as we speak, people are dying, and that'll unfortunately be the case for, you know, days and weeks to come. Um, but maybe can you just share a little bit then about um how how you're trying to approach things going forward because you are trying to make a case you are trying to persuade people i think what you're saying and calling for including in your new york times piece is urgent and it is a view that maybe most americans in the mainstream press are not are not hearing so it stands out for good reason um what are you trying to say to people especially for for folks who might not be aware of your role in these debates and how you've approached them traditionally? Sure. Um, so I hope it goes without saying that what Hamas did on October 7th was really unspeakable um, and um, produced a um, just a deep trauma um, in Israel that I think, although it gets compared to 9-11, I, I think it's significantly beyond um, 9-11 in the United States. First of all, just numerically as a percentage of the population, it's significantly more. In addition to the fact that we didn't have the hostage question that just kind of add, you know, um, it's almost like maybe if you tried to put 9-11 plus the Iran hostage crisis in some way, but it's also a society that's probably more traumatized already than Americans, um, because Americans probably have had a kind of expectation of security. And while Israelis had a relative expectation of security, Israeli Jews compared to Palestinians, you were talking about a population that has suffered a lot in wars. This was the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War. And then, of course, kind of Jewish trauma that kind of can seem like it's, it's, it's in the history books, but then when it gets reawoken, it turns out it's actually often you know, very present uh, in kind of intergenerational ways. Um, and then, of course, the fact that Afghanistan and Iraq and Al-Qaeda, whatever, were, were far away from the United States. The United States kind of went, they came to the United States in, in, in September 11th, then the United States went halfway across the world to fight them. It's not the same when uh, those forces, uh, Hamas is not really only in Gaza, but also in a way in the West Bank and its allies, Hezbollah, in, in Lebanon. So that and, you know, and this was ground fighting on Amer on Israeli soil that lasted literally days. Um, so um, uh, that trauma is, is is so deep and the level of grief and rage is so great um, that it really makes it hard among Israeli Jews, not among Palestinian citizens of Israel, by the way, who are 20 percent, but among Israeli Jews of the pop of the citizenry, but of Israeli Jews really hard, I think, to have any conversation other than. The, you know, in an echo of the way Americans talked after 9-11, we have to destroy this evil, period, you know. Um, and so the frankly, very, very few Israeli Jews are interested in hearing somebody like me um, try to uh, 
suggest that that may not go well um, and try to uh, and try to put this in a different perspective. And there's always the the kind of perilous possibility that people will misinterpret what I'm saying and suggesting that by trying to put it in perspective and contextualize it, that I'm in some ways justifying. I mean, we have on our refrigerator door the name of all of the captives so that we see it every, my and me, my wife and our kids, we see it every single day. Um, um, everyone we know um, has someone who has either died or been captured or is about to go into military service. So it's like an ongoing agony, even for those of us in the Jewish diaspora, let alone in Israel. So I, I, um, I hope people won't, won't think that I don't share in that enormous pain of a, of a Jewish community that is imagined as a kind of family by me. Um, um, but I think that it's important for people to remember that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict did not begin with Hamas. Hamas was created in the late 1980s. Um, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict goes back more than a century um, and has involved acts of terrible Palestinian violence against civilians, um, which go back at least to 1929, and, um, and were not necessarily committed, not just not by, by Hamas, not committed by Islamists. I mean, the, the hijackings of the 1960s and 70s, the, 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 the Munich massacre of the, at the Olympics, these were committed more, mostly by leftist Palestinian organizations. So the, the point I'm trying to make is there's a, there's a much deeper conflict at play here, and that conflict has for a very long time involved tremendous amounts of violence. It has involved tremendous amounts of violence on the Israeli side, most importantly the, the Nakba, the, the expulsion of more than half the Palestinian population in 1948. The Israel's control over millions of Palestinians since 1967 who lack the most basic rights, who have fewer rights than a black person in Mississippi under Jim Crow because they're not even citizens of the state that controls their lives. That is in That itself is in, involves enormous violence. And then there has been terrible violence against civilians you know, um, uh, um, committed in response. The reason I say all this is that if you see it in that context, then the, then, then you have to realize that even if you could destroy Hamas, which I think is not possible, that would not solve that much, right? Hamas, another Palestinian group will emerge. There are already other, there's already these groups in the West Bank, Lion's Den. Other Palestinian groups will emerge, and they will resist their lack of rights, and they will fight against Israel. And um, probably many of them will do so violently. And, and, and if, if Gaza is turned if, if you lay waste to Gaza, um, as Israel seems like it may do, you are probably going to make it more likely that Hamas 2.0, 3.0, whatever, is, is, is particularly violent and brutal because people who have been experienced unbelievable trauma and pain um, tragically tend to be less likely to respond in the kind of ethical ways, uh, in, to resist in the kind of ethical ways that we would like. Shadi, you have no, something? You know, I, no, I just assumed that you'd want to jump in right now. I mean, now. I've got, I've got, I've got plenty to jump in on, Peter. I mean, I guess let, maybe just to to lead um, readers a little bit into your thinking right now. Um, you, you've, 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 uh, you've been convinced that the two state solution was not going to to work, um, or at least that that there was yeah. some. I, I guess maybe just. The, the, the question for you is, where are you right now looking at all of this? And, I, you know, it's impossible to look beyond the immediate. Yeah. I know it's, you know, yeah. yeah. Shadi and I are both at the Post yeah. now, and, and I'm on Op-Ed's side. We're, we're trying to, like, get our hands around what's happening, our heads yeah. around what's happening. And, and what I struggle with 
um, in all of this is uh, balancing, you know, paying adequate attention to what's actually happening right now. And then to what you guys are both talking about in different ways is the bigger picture, which is this historical picture and understanding the context. But then it's also the question of, of, you know, in, in, in what direction should we be even looking now uh, at, at, at this question, just help orient us a little bit about this. Where are you at right now? As you even think about, obviously we're talking in very broad terms, resolution to the conflict of justice rights, all the rest of that. Right. Help us think, where are you at? Not not a blueprint, right. here's what we need to do X, Y, and Z right. to get there, you know? Just right. just g- give us a sense. I, I mean, I, I guess what I think about now is less about how you could get a resolution and a just peace, um, uh, but more how you could prevent the absolute worst. Um, um, and I think the absolute worst um, is another mass expulsion event, which every Palestinian I know fears and thinks is entirely possible. Um, and, and the problem is in some ways that, you know, what are the range of different options? One is the idea that I've called for, which looks further away than ever, which is Israelis and Palestinians living in one political unit, whether it's confederation, federation, whatever, basically with equality. Another is, uh, which is just a complete non-starter in Israel, was even before this and is now just considered even more laughably absurd. Um, the second is a partition, a, a genuine sovereign Palestinian state in the West Bank and, and the Gaza Strip. That's also probably further away now. Um, um, uh, and, um, and, is, and, and is what, in the end, the chances, I think, I think there are very few people who, who look at things closely on the ground who think that such a thing is still possible. Um, the third is what Israel's kind of been doing in recent years, which is kind of managing this, um, essentially with a series of carrots and sticks, um, a subcontractor in the West Bank, which kind of keeps things under control there to some degree, and a kind of what the Palestinian scholar Tariq Berkoni is called a violent equilibrium with Hamas, where you have periodic skirmishes, but essentially Israel doesn't try to dislodge Hamas on the ground because they don't want to run it themselves. They don't have an option. And so they basically just try to maintain a deterrence, which is, you know, in very, very violent ways by, by bombing now and then occasionally Hamas will bomb and then Israel will bomb. So that now also seems like that has collapsed, right? Um, um, it's collapsed with Hamas um, because it doesn't, it seems very har- hard to imagine that Israel could go back to allowing Hamas to remain in control in Gaza. I think certainly Benjamin Netanyahu wouldn't survive that politically. He might, may not survive anyway. And it also seems that the Palestinian Authority is just more and more and more fragile. So if you've run, if one, two, and three are not possible, there is a very dark logic, um, but it is a logic, and it's in the deep history of the Israeli state. Israel has always been of the view, the Israeli political logic has always been that fewer Palestinians were better, that you wanted as much land with as few Palestinians. Um, that was how the Jewish state was created. It could only have been created with, a, with an act of expulsion because there were just too many Palestinians there. Even the part of the, the state that was allocated for the Jews in the UN partition plan was almost 50% Palestinian. It, it couldn't have been a Jewish state, actually. Um, um, and, and so... What you see from figures like Betsyla Smotrich, the finance minister uh, who, ta- who called for this thing called the decisive solution in 2019, was essentially to say, if we can't manage this, we're not going to give them a state. We're not going to give them equal rights. If we can't manage it, they need to leave. Um, and, 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 and this is, I think, where things have been heading a little bit in the West Bank, um, certainly in Area C of the West Bank, which is a 60 percent that Smotrich and others have been 
destroying more and more Palestinian villages and trying to push Palestinians into smaller enclaves. And now we see it on a potentially even larger scale in the West Bank because the re, you know, there was this debate about humanitarian corridor into, the, into Egypt, into the Sinai. And if you listen to Palestinian discourse, what Palestinians seem to be saying with almost one voice is, we have seen this movie before. You send us out into the Sinai and we know we're ne you're never letting us back. We're never going to, I mean, this is, even that it was this, it's so poignant and powerful, but even the, the people, the things that I heard from people when Israel said that you had to leave the northern parts of the Gaza Strip and go to the southern part of the Gaza Strip, were all these stories in fam of Palestinian families in which the elderly people said, we want, we will, we want to stay and die in our homes. We will not allow become refugees again because we know that if we leave we're never going to be able to come back and there is so we don't i don't think that the, it's hard to know exactly where the netanyahu government doesn't think netanyahu's administration really has a strategy but i almost feel in a certain way that in the absence of a strategy but with this political instinct which has mass support for a decisive solution the only decisive solution in a way is a kind of expulsionist solution maybe not all of the Palestinians, maybe just some of the Palestinians, but, and again, this is in that we have seen in America in the last, you know, in the, in the Trump era, before that, that the ways in which the deep history of a country, if it's never acknowledged, if it's not sufficiently acknowledged, not sufficiently addressed, if there's not a process of working through it, that it remains there at, on the shelf for when, when moments of trauma come. And this, is, of course, has been a moment of trauma unlike any. And so for me, I guess in some ways, I feel like before any of the other stuff, I just think about, can we stop this from happening? So, you know, the, the, the challenge, and Shadi and I unpacked this last week, um, is, is, uh, is the question of how do you, how do you, um, you know, grant all of that about the Israeli viewpoint on it, but how does one, and how does we outside of Israel, we who are not Jews, uh, you know, or even Americans, uh, Muslim Americans who are, are, are very passionate and, and are, are, are really active on the Palestinian issue. How do we, how do we start thinking about uh, the question of, quite frankly, legitimacy, I think is the, is the, is the, hardest, is the hardest way and the, the, the most difficult way to think about it, which is to say that, uh, yes, Hamas doesn't have democratic legitimacy, uh, but like many revolutionary movements, uh, violence legitimates revolutionary movements. Mm -hmm. And what both of you are talking about in a lot of ways uh, with bringing in the context and the history of the conflict is uh, uh, a, a desperation felt among pa Palestinians that uh, they've tried everything else. Um, I'm following very closely uh, you know, the fate of Abbas and what will happen in the West Bank and the, mm -hmm. the whole sort of fate of the Palestinian Authority. I mean, you know, uh, there's questions, the extent to which uh, Hamas was surprised by how um, how far they got and the amount of carnage they were able to sow in Israel. But one can't but think that uh, part of their bigger play is a legitimacy play across all Palestinians, even in the West Bank. 
And as you watch sort of what's happening there, you, you mentioned, I mean, we in the post, we ran a, a really chilling story yesterday reporting, talking to these Milton groups like Lion's Den and the rest of them. And they're saying, we're waiting. This is exactly right. we're waiting for, for Gaza to really happen when the Israelis go in, when right. the IDF is stretched, if Hezbollah goes right. in the north. Right. So, right. look, th th those are all details. I, 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 I want to just sort of ask about this real problem of legitimacy, because, I mean, Shadi and I went back on it. And I mean, Shadi, the question's for you as well. But it's, it's that question of, yes, uh, the worst must be averted, and we have to be very careful how we approach this. And in many ways, this feels kind of like 9-11, like, like there's a, a juggernaut moving, and we're all, yeah. you know, we, we're talking around while these seismic shifts are happening. Right. But, 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 but let's just drill in a little bit about that question of, of political legitimacy uh, a little bit. And I don't know, what, how, do you, how, do you, how do you start parsing that? Are you, you're talking about... Hamas's legitimacy or lack thereof, and how Ham Hamas fits into this bigger question of who represents, who will represent the Palestinian people? Well, I mean, I, I think you kind of have to start thinking about that because the, the logic of, of violence and the logic of revolutions and things like that is that the worst enemies to any solution are the sensible people in the middle. So you just remove that as an option to even talk about that. So you're, you present yourself as as the one poll that you have to address. And yep. I, in no world can I see, you know, uh, Peter, not just Bibi, but like any Israeli leader being able to sit down right. and negotiate with Hamas at this point. Right, right. I mean, you, you're exactly right, although I suppose it's also worth remembering that there was probably a moment in the United States after 9-11 when no one would ever imagine negotiating with the Taliban. And in a sense, we ended a up- a good point. We, we kind of, I mean, once we had been humbled, Right. Um, right. Um, then then the politics had to change. Um, now, I, I um, and that's, you know, um, I don't I, I think that, look, th there is there is a crisis of legitimacy that um, I think that the, the U.S. and Israel, in part, bear the blame for um, that, that the that the Palestinian this is the time piece I tried argument I tried to make in the Times piece that the that the forces in Palestinian politics that were pursuing other strategies other than armed resistance against civilians have been defeated um, or they haven't made any headway. There was on the one there was the strategy that I think whether Arafat really believed it or not, I think Mahmoud Abbas did believe in it, which was that basically you would do security cooperation with Israel. You would keep things quiet for Israel and the West Bank. You would show that you could be trusted with a state um, and then you would get a state. Now, now that to be fair, that there were also differences between the Palestinians' vision of what a two-state solution and is, is looked like were, was different than Israel's. But I think Mahmoud Abbas genuinely did want a pal an independent Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza. Um, the but there were the problems with that were that that the the bet didn't pay off for them. Um, they were never able to stop settlement growth. Um, and as the settlement growth made, made Palestinians feel that they were becoming ever further away from the state, they became to, began to look more and more like quislings. You know, basically, it's just the way they look now, basically just Israel subcontractors. Now, and, and I also think that Hamas's political strength, and this goes back to the 1990s. Um, yes, Hamas was a spoiler. Hamas did hor horrific things in, during the suicide bombings in the 1990s and the Second Intifada. But Hamas was also gained Hamas's ability to do this would have been more constrained was more constrained when Palestinians were more optimistic that cooperation with Israel and a peace process was getting them once they became less pessimistic once they began to despair it gave Hamas more room to operate 
And that has continued now even more dramatically to today, um, when I think Palestinians are, a lot of them support, are happy with Hamas, what Hamas did, even if they're people who, who don't like to see civilian life killed because they just wanted some form of resistance um, because they had been led, because so many other for options had been foreclosed. There was another group of Palestinians in the wake of the Second Intifada who were trying a basically a kind of international strategy modeled on the South Africa strategy. They were calling for boycotts, calling for sanctions, divestment, the International Criminal Court, all kinds of efforts. The U.S. and its European allies and others did a, have done a very effective job of basically shutting that down, it, you know. Um, and so I think the, this has contributed to the political, the political opening that Hamas has, has had now. And it's the worst, as you say, it's the worst of all situations because, as you say, it makes it um, so difficult. You know, one of the things the Biden administration did that I think was very significant in retrospect was that in early 2000 and in 2021, there were talk of Palestinian elections. You know, the Palestinians haven't had elections since the election that Hamas won in 2006. And there were talk about Israeli elections. And Abbas kind of didn't want them because he was afraid he would lose. But um, but America and, and Israel didn't really want them either. And America kind of gave them, the, Abbas, the green light to not have those elections. America wasn't really, didn't want elections either. And, and I think ultimately you needed elections to have a legitimate Palestinian political leadership that you could that could make difficult decisions that could chart a strategy. But but of course, who's going to be willing to hold elections now in which Hamas runs, especially with more popular? So we are at so many dead ends and that I almost feel like you're talking about a generational rebuilding. Um, and I just hope there's you know, that will take maybe decades or generations to 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 move to a fundamentally better place. And this makes me think of, you know, the whole list of original sins going back to the 2006 elections. There were a number of efforts for Palestinian national reconciliation where uh, Fatah and Hamas were trying to create some unity front or unity government. And there were a number of tries. The The most recent major attempt was in, in 2014 with the, the Shati agreement. But all of these things fell apart. And part of that has to do with <clears throat> the U.S. and Israel's disincentivizing of any kind of national reconciliation efforts. Mm. Um, and it's hard to talk about this now because, right. you know, to say that there, there might have been a way to domesticate Hamas and bring them into the political yeah. process and bring them yeah. under the PLO and the, Pal and the Palestinian yeah. Authority I think it's hard for people to say that now right. because right. they're they're a brutal terrorist group. Look what they've right. done. How could we even right. like think back? Right. There is this sense sometimes that when we think about evil, it's it's very narrow. We don't right. ask as much how how does this come to be? And I don't right. think it was inevitable that Hamas there's other alternative histories that we can right. play out from two thousand six yes. onwards yes. where it wouldn't have turned out this way. Right, um, right, right. And I guess it's not super useful to talk about it because it's all too late. But it is worth noting that there was a very conscious effort to isolate Hamas and to undermine Palestinian unity. And yes. that was a top priority um, of, of Palestinians across the board. Even people who hated Hamas yes, yes. acknowledged at some level that yes. you can't just ignore them at some basic level. You can't just wish that Hamas didn't exist. It existed, and it's a it's a powerful player. 
um, and has been in the Palestinian scene. So right. I, I right. don't have a lot to go with. Like, yeah. I don't know if that leads to anything profound, but I, I'm but curious I, how you I would think, react to that. No, I think you're making some really important points. The Israeli position has been to want the West Bank and Gaza separated. Um, 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 I think, and Netanyahu has said at various points that in some ways he had found Hamas kind of useful because it makes a Palestinian state impossible because you have this divided leadership. Um, and I think that, you know, when we talk about Hamas, I think we're often conflating three different things. The first is its use of violence against civilians, which is despicable. The second is its Islamism, right? And the third is its opposition to the idea of partition. Those two, three things do not always necessarily go exactly together, right? There are a lot of, um, the, the, the PLO was using violence against civilians. And in fact, even in the 1990s and the 2000s, there were nationalist Fatah factions that used violence against civilians, right? Um, there's not, it's when in late, early 19, in the late 1980s, the, the Hamas's Islamism was actually considered by, in Israel, a sign that they were more moderate because Israel was more concerned about the nationalists in, in Fatah. I think we, we can never know for sure, but there were, there were, if you read Tarek Bakoni's book, Hamas Contained, which is, you know, good and very sober book about Hamas, certainly not one that it apologizes for it in any way. It's very critical of it. But it, it does note the way, it's a history, and it notes that Hamas responded different ways in different circumstances. And I think there were periods of time um, around um, when Hamas seemed to be talking as if they might be open to a to a to, to two states. Now, they had a more you know we can't be we can't be sure. Um, you know they 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 were certainly trying to outflank Fatah and the PLO, which were taking a more hardline position. They weren't really necessarily even talking about kind of recognizing Israel like in, as a kind of legitimate entity, but more just kind of kind of accepting that the Jewish state was there and that they would there be in the West Bank and Gaza. Um, I don't I can't I'm not going to sit here and say that. That, that necessarily would have happened. But I do think that there were some signs that Hamas at times responded to where Palestinians were, you know, to, to where Palestinian popular opinion were. Uh, there was talk that if that if, if there was talk of that one point that Hamas would accept the will of a referendum among the Palestinians if there was a negotiated solution, for instance. And um, Again, it could be that that was that could never have happened, that Hamas never would have gone along. We don't know for sure. But I do think what we do know is that the fact that that prospect has receded has empowered Hamas um, and has put us in a in a logic which seems more brutally zero sum than than perhaps it it might have been if things had gone a different path. Um, and I just one more thing. I just you know, people talk all the time about Hamas's takeover in Gaza, you, you know, they threw the Fatah people off buildings. And I mean, th that's all true, but they don't what they t what I find people tend not to mention, which I find frustrating, is that after Hamas won a plurality in those Palestinian elections in 2006 that followed Israel's disengagement from Gaza in 2005, Hamas wanted to go into a coalition government with Abbas. And as you say, most Palestinians wanted some kind of coalition government. Um, it, the U.S. basically made that impossible, and the U.S. got the got Gulf countries to basically arm Mohammed Dahlan to go in to Gaza to try to basically force Hamas out by force. And it's in that circumstance that you had this violent conflict that Hamas won on the ground. That was a very important decision that the Bush administration made, and I think there's good reason to question whether it was the right one. Yeah, oh, yeah. Only, I mean, but. Shadi, let me press you on it just a little bit. And I mean, Peter, I, yeah. you as well, though, though I, it's, it's more, I think, a question for Shadi specifically. Um, 
this question of of um, the politics of moderation. In short, you 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 create a system where you're 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 able to have participatory democracy and some kind of representative system, and and there's there are there are trends to moderation of that. But again, and I'm I'm really am the the uh, the neophyte in all of this. You guys are much 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 more versed in it. But the other thing you'll hear all the time is that Hamas's charter and it's you know and is cited frequently by uh, by a lot of right wing. Um, Israelis and in general right-wing people that there's something inherent about Hamas that this was their vision and to give without without you know being expert in any of this the only point I just sort of push on both of you is this question of a revolutionary force that if you have a revolutionary force that is committed to a kind of revolution it will it will also participate in sort of you know democratic political or you know pseudo democratic or fledgling democratic political um, uh, experiments and and work within it. Um, obviously, the whole Cold War, the story in Europe was was this worry that, that communist parties, in fact, were using democracy and communists were actually uh, very cognizantly working that way. And again, the story of why, why uh, you know, Europe ended up with a social democracy rather than other things, very fascinating one, a very complex one. Um, but it's also to say that that the worries about these things are not always unfounded. Now again, it's compared to what, but but um, you know, it's I, I I guess the the push I'm 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 asking both of you to sort of like look into is um, it's it's true and important to acknowledge the everything that led us to this point, um, but I also uh, wonder if it's also easy at a point like this to come up with other what's what if stories that. Um, you know, are also somewhat fanciful. Uh, and I don't know enough about Hamas to, to call it one way or the other. But it, it seems to me that, that, that whether it's events that have allowed them to become the most radical uh, embodiment of a lot of the things that they stand for, and the, whether that could have been changed, we're still facing, you know, the reality of today's Hamas with everything that it represents and seems to represent fulsomely, Right. Yeah. So to you. For, for, first thing I would say is the argument isn't that Hamas would become moderate in some kind of deeply felt way. The argument is that they would be constrained by their political environment. They wouldn't be able to act in certain ways if they were part of a coalition government. Um, or they uh, if if the Palestinian people actually had a path forward and could envision a state sometime in the medium in the medium to long term and actually had hope, then Hamas would be more isolated because Hamas uh, would then be more of a spoiler and Palestinians more broadly would not want their chances for peace to be spoiled. I mean, this is a point that I think Peter makes quite well in his New York Times piece during the height of the Oslo Accords, um, the vast majority of Palestinians supported two-state solution and were broadly against the use of violence. And um, in those kinds of circumstances, um, Hamas becomes marginalized. So I think the issue here is how do you constrain radical actors? How do you create a, an environment that makes it harder for them to act in extreme ways rather than Oh, Hamas has had a change of heart. They actually now are, you know, nice and fluffy. Um, and I wouldn't. I, I think that's not that's not really part of the argument. Um, 
I have no doubt in my mind that in their heart of hearts, um, Hamas would much rather Israel be erased from the earth. Um, they would, you know, if they could wait it out a hundred years, and sometimes you hear this language among Islamists that, yeah, you have to accept, maybe you accept that Israel exists as a kind of temporary thing, and you wait for a more opportune time to realize your maximalist vision. But so, but, but at the end of the day, you have to actually, we're, we're dealing with constraints and Hamas and, or anyone else can't destroy Israel because Israel has one of the most one of the more powerful militaries in the world. It has U, U.S. backing. So these kind of fantasies that people might have in their ideal worlds, I don't know how relevant they are. So the charter, which has been updated, there's there's a new charter. People don't talk about that. Not that it really matters now. But that the old the founding charter was written in the late 1980s. Is that the best way to understand? how a movement operates. You look at something they wrote, right. um, you know, 30 years ago. I don't, that's not usually how we would do it in political right. science, and, and, um, you know. Uh, sorry, yeah, I think hold I- Hold on a sec, Peter. I don't know, he he might've cut out for a sec here. Shadi, you, you, you glitched out. Okay, go ahead, Peter. Um, yeah, I'm gonna look, I think that part of the challenge is that we, we, the, the, we need to talk about Hamas, um, in ways that that um, are, are not, you know, not naive. Uh, this is a group that has done despicable things, and I totally agree with Shari. There's no question that their that their their preferred solution would be that there was no Israel. Frankly, the preferred solution of the vast majority of Palestinians is that there would be no Israel, right? Um, um, but Hamas believes that even more intensely. But and I but I want to read a paragraph from their 2017 charter, which is the second charter, only because I think. If we're going to look at Hamas's documents, then we should look at all the documents, not just the 1987. We should look at the more recent charters. And I think this this paragraph gets at this question of to what degree are they being influenced by what Palestinians say? And here's this paragraph. Hamas believes that no part of the land of Palestine shall be compromised or conceded irrespective of the cause, circumstances, and pressures, and no, lo no matter how long the occupation lasts. Hamas rejects any alternative to the full and complete liberation of Palestine from the river to the sea. Right? Okay, sounds pretty categorical, right? And then it goes on. However, without compromising its rejection of the Zionist entity and without relinquishing any Palestinian rights, Hamas considers the establishment of a fully sovereign and independent Palestinian state with Jerusalem as its capital along the lines of the 4th of June 1967 with the return of refugees and the displaced to their homes from which they were expelled to be a formula of national consensus. So how do we understand that, right? It sounds kind of co completely contradictory in a certain way, right? Um, but I think the phrase national consensus is interesting, right? This obviously is not Hamas's first choice, right? Um, uh, and Hamas has played a spoiler role. But there's also some, and, you know, and what exactly they mean by full rejection of refugees and what it means to have a state on the 67 lines if you basically have never conceded. There's a lot of questions there. But I think the words national consensus are interesting. It does suggest that Hamas is recognizing some Palestinian perspective that they may need to respond to. Um, and I think that's what I think we should have thought more about, which is what are we, what impact are we having on the broader Palestinian political environment in which Hamas operates? That's it for part one, dear listeners. There's a lot more where that came from. If you're not yet a paying subscriber, please head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live and become one. 
help support our work. Hope to see you in the bonus. We'll be right back.